0: What is up, everybody? Welcome back to Resident Reels, uh, where we talk about movies and TV shows and audio and all the fun things. Um, I'm Adam, and I'm here with...
1: Chandler, your other fun co-host that talks about all these things. I'm excited for today.
0: I'm excited for today, and also not emotionally recovered for today <laughs> right
1: yes yes big warning for everyone uh for all listeners the these are heavy movies i think we knew that picking them but didn't fully accept it until watching them i feel like those both of us were like we know these are going to be hard movies but didn't realize how much it was gonna you know put you through the grinder emotionally because the shit matters for both movies
0: especially if like you're me and you watch move like I watched basically all of these as double features, so it's like a back-to-back moment, and that—that that was, I yeah, that was a choice that I made to do that this time.
1: So I guess I'm starting this one. Yeah, well, I, go for it. So I picked the movie "Worse" that came out in 2020, which was directed by Sarah Colangelo. Um, this one's, of course, starring Michael Keaton and Stanley Tucci and Amy Ryan, so it's got like a really good, strong acting core. So the whole movie is kind of based around the September 11th Victims Fund. I think he's technically a lawyer, but he's like a special master lawyer. It's it's complicated to kind of figure it out, but his name is Kenneth Feinberg, and he essentially has become known because of this September 11th Victims Fund and helping big cases and helping determine valuations of human lives that are lost in and, and tragic incidents Because the company he worked for, we learn in this movie, dealt with the Agent Orange and a lot of asbestos issues of people afflicted and affected by that. So it's not new, but of course, in the context of September 11th, 2001, it's a lot more difficult. This movie is really interesting. We'll we'll dive in. It's weird for me because it's like, you know it's going to happen because it's very historically a movie and this one's just kind of like you're just feeling the fight between not necessarily fight but the trying to find compromise between kenneth feinberg and charles wolf charles wolf is this guy who lost his wife in 9-11 and was very much wanting to have this fund fixed so he started this whole campaigning effort to fix the fund because everyone was confused because it's a very this was pushes a very quick turnaround process because Congress was scared of a big economic crash because of class action lawsuits against all the airline companies. And then the government would have to do bailouts and things like that. And it's a really rough era of America economically, especially because we are honestly on a verge of a crash before the 2008 economic crash that happened. You know, Bush and his administration are enacting this war on terror and send like upping the military spending to send troops and have presence over in the Middle East in retaliation and response to the 9 11 attacks. We're not going to dive too much into the politics of that. I'm going to focus on more of the humanity of the family, loved ones, and friends of those who lost people in 9 11 because this is what this. This movie really focuses on that and really connects it to the human level, like the emotional human
0: level, which I think is really strong in that sense. I 100% agree. I think that that's something that this movie does really, really well in that I, I, I feel like as with every, you know, historic retelling, when it's sensitive material, like they're is always the chance for it to wind up going sideways or hyper-focusing on kind of the wrong aspects. And I feel like this movie did a really good job of what you were saying with with talking about the the humanity of it all and and focusing on those actually affected.
1: So, I mean, like, from the get-go, it's, it's a very uniquely stylized movie, but it's, like, in that, like, this is a biography style that's kind of been very common, I would say, in the last 10 years where it's, like, things look beautiful, but it's because you're focused on people having lots of dialogue. Like it innately has this specific style, especially since like a lot of the settings is, uh, DC and New York. Like we were just hopping between like mostly just those two cities because, uh, Feinberg's company, for lack of a better word, runs out of DC or Virginia area. Uh, but essentially like the movie kind of starts out following Feinberg and this is pre, uh, September 11th 2001 there's a lot of unique sound design so like I do like I. this is a fun thing to connect both our movies today really unique and well done sound design in storytelling agreed yes so well done uh, because first, the first be- the truly beginning of this movie is actually hearing different people's testimonies of the people they lost in 9-11 and it's just a black screen for like at least 30 seconds or so and then we cut to just one uh woman talking about i believe it's her son that she lost where we get immediately like what this movie is going to say to us it's like this is the summary of the movie essentially of what people feel like and why they want some sort of recognition respect and justice because they're, they, most of the people affected by 9-11 truly blame the U.S. government for letting such a terrible thing happen. And they're not fully wrong. Wrong, yeah.
0: I have two things. One, listeners out there, uh, my laptop is very broken. It fell off the top of a refrigerator. Um, and so now if I try to move my screen past a certain angle, my screen goes black. So I was actually um, very unaware that the first 30 seconds of this movie were a black screen and i spent some time trying to reboot my computer trying to figure out like how i could get it to function um because everything else works like the whole keyboard lights up and everything and then i realized oh this this is this part of the film great and I will also say I watched your movie after I watched my movie and going from my movie immediately into this monologue of another mother talking about losing her son in a very tragic way fucked me up. And uh, that was like the, the, the ideas of loss due to tragedy between our two was, was a lot.
1: Yeah. So yeah. Then after that, we kind of cut to Feinberg kind of just, he, he's teaching a class um, I forgot what university he's at, but it's a place he he just kind of adjunct teaches. It's at uh, Columbia. Columbia. Thank you. And he's talk he, he, it's a really cool kind of like quick lesson of the class of what life, what a life is worth. And he's like very much like, this isn't philosophical. This isn't rhetorical. Like how much is a human life worth? And he does this whole scenario, pick students, put them into like, weird roles kind of thing, but he doesn't care because he's showing like what he and his company of lawyers kind of do for a living of like, we have to figure out an evaluation of a person's life in whatever accident. So he goes on the scenario of like so-and-so's ex-girlfriend's father died from a tractor or a combine harvester running them over. And so the daughter is suing against the farm holder and the company who made the combine harvester. And so they're trying to find a settlement of the life lost. And it's how how do you determine that? And then it really just quickly becomes like a quick negotiation of like, maybe it's 2 million. No, I would say I'm worth 3 million. And then it's like, how about 2.7 million? All right, deal. And it's just like, That, in a nutshell, is what's been happening for all these special cases, which is weird to think about. And this movie makes you try to rationalize what Feinberg has to do for a living. And it's a hard job. It has to be done, but how do you determine value of a human life, right? And I think he initially has a good sense, but he's also very much what we learn he stays too objective and doesn't involve himself emotionally with victims and families. and There's like neutrality to a fault. Which you can see being understandable, but also flawed. And that especially becomes apparent when you get to 9-11. We also learn that he's been trying to get this new home made that he wants... He and his wife to move to. They have three children, but I believe they're all kind of adults now. He's also an avid music listener. You know, the classic like late 90s Sony sound system with like a 100 disc CD player, but only puts one CD in. So you're like, why do you have this overkill? And you're like, oh, because you work big cases and get big payouts and stuff like that. I think it was a great casting to put Michael Keaton in this role because everyone has this like I love Michael Keaton. He's great, but then he's like kind of playing like this like weird highbrow person and you don't know how to feel exactly, and I think that's just like
0: so spot on yes, i I mean it's michael keaton so it, 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 but this is this is just another role where it's like damn. He really did that. Like, you know what I mean? Like he, he truly just becomes these, I was going to say versions of himself, but they're not him, obviously. They're just, he just becomes these people, characters, whatever. Um, and yeah, this one watching, I was like, I, I, I kept having to remind myself that I was watching Michael Keaton and not like this guy in real life.
1: Right. Yeah. It's, it's all the casting. Like you believe them as these real people and you kind of like forget you're seeing these actors play these characters. And I think that's so responsible and well done in telling this story. Cause like, I even say I, I like when we get to Stanley Tucci's character, Charles Wolf, I was just like, I was mind blown again with Stanley Tucci. I'm just like, you're just so good. Oh uh, yes. What a King. But yeah, like most of the sound design in the beginning of this movie kind of like follows Ken because we get a little bit when he's like doing his late night putting on my headphones listening to music and like we get this slowly just change in the audio quality because it becomes we're listening from the outside then we're kind of like getting the weird stereo still hearing the muffled outside world and then it's the fully immersed into the music and he's an opera fan so it's a lot of
0: opera music and classical music but what a beautiful genre of music to like have that moment to as well with the the sustained notes and tones and to be able to go from that outside to inside like oh it
1: was so good so we kind of also learn that like Feinberg listens to music a lot to help soothe his soul is what he says later to like deal with the complexity of like number crunching and evaluations that he does because like i can't even begin to imagine how much you try to consider because he genuinely seems like a good guy when he tries to do these valuations and tries to put everything in perspective but he also has the he has the goal of like get this done
0: as soon as possible, so people can just get closure. It's a che- it's like a checklist is how it is how it kind of seemed. It's like great, you know, this is the end goal. We're just getting to the end goal. It's about it's about crossing it off. So he's riding
1: a train. It's his daily train commute to work. We're we're focused on him, but then we see like we hear. Phones going off because it's also he's listening to music on the train with headphones on. So we're like we're kind of like sucked in initially with that. So it's another beautiful sound design moment. He's just sitting there trying to do work on the train, you know, because he's a busy guy got lots to do. we hear a bunch of cell phones start going off, and these are like early phones, so they got those like stereotypical rings that are just annoying and gnawing, and you're like, ah, turn it off. but you, just, you we start seeing panic of people and people are trying to look out the train window and, He is like one of the last people to be like, wait, what's going on? Because it truly takes a lot of commotion to get him out of the work and blinders that he has on. And then the train stops with him, see out the window, the plane crash on the Pentagon. From there, like we immediately just cut back to him at home with his wife, watching the news. And we kind of like go through actual footage that was filmed throughout that day as well as like the characters we've barely seen and people like at the office who are watching it i think this movie does a good job at also selecting archival footage
0: i liked that incorporation a lot
1: and i think it, it only works because it was filmed and like that stuff was filmed in 2001 so like contextually and like The quality of what was filmed still works in comparison to like your movie where it's like they made the artistic choice not to go that direction because of the possibility of losing the audience and the suspense of disbelief. And then, of course, Feinberg gets contacted because he does a lot of work with the US government to sit in on a special meeting with a bunch of politicians of Congress and such with some other lawyer types to hear what their plan is it's just so these politicians like they're they're only thinking what's best for like the country and the economy and much less about people
0: yes they're thinking about the 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 not i mean the best way to say is like the non-human aspects they're not thinking about the humanity of anything they're thinking about like the. You know, the literal land, the way the government works, they're not thinking about the humanity.
1: You have Feinberg interjecting a couple times being like, but like you have to evaluate human lives lost and like consider their value to society and what they could have valued because this wasn't their fault that they died. And Congress is like, no, 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 we can't like, we need you to like figure out how to fix it because we can't deal with a class action lawsuit. So you have this other lawyer, Lee Quinn, Who's like, no, like you're going to get sued. Like these airlines are going to get sued. People are going to like Congress very much is like we can't economically do it because we will be providing the bailouts and we don't have the money to do it. If you're going to target these airlines that are already going to go bankrupt because these airlines did go bankrupt historically anyways because of these attacks. And so the government's like, we would have to do the bailouts. We financially can't do it. We're at the verge of an economic crash. And Lee is very much like, it doesn't matter. Like people, you're trying to do this too quickly. People are going to fight you no matter what, because Congress wants this done as soon as possible to not be dealt with. And so beyond this, Feinberg decides that, I think it's after watching the news again, just decides that like, he's going to do it pro bono. And he goes and meets up with a representative and they have this conversation because to politicians, it's about politics all the time. But to him, it's about actually serving the people, which we learn like he does care about the people like he wants to do his due diligence. And he's like, yeah, you've got a Republican president and cabinet and like majority and everything. Yeah. Why would you reach across the aisle for a registered Democrat like me? But like To him, it's like the optics don't matter because like you can just blame me anyways if I fail. But then also you would look good by reaching across the aisle if I do a good job. So like why why does it matter? And I think that's like really good because that really shows like why Feinberg is truly doing this. He's doing this for the people to help them find closure and to help them move on from such a huge tragedy because it's it's affecting him and his family. Like he had a son in, at NYU, I think. He was on his way to work, saw the Pentagon. Like it's nine eleven is a unique thing for Americans because the people who were alive when it happened, like it, it shook us everyone to their core because it was a it was this egregious attack on civilians. Right. And it was scary and terrifying and people had understandable fears since that attack of like being in. High rise buildings, going
0: on airplanes. My uh, my dad got stuck in Boston because he. I was alone with my mom, and he had he had flown out to Boston. I forget why, but he was like supposed to fly back like the next day or something, and obviously could not get on a plane for quite some time after that. I think like there's a really interesting dichotomy in this film because because er, we you know earlier we were kind of talking about like. Feinberg's, like, just getting them as closure as quickly as possible. So, like, there's, there's, like, urgency in that way. But then also the politics and the optics of everything. It's the urgency of, like, just fucking deal with it. Like, we just need to get, we just need to get this closed. And so, like, everybody has this, like, speed almost to approaching, like, how to do all of this, but it's coming from very different, like, perspectives.
1: And I guess to put in... Perspective, it was like just under 3,000 lives were lost due to 9 11, but like thousands, like tens of thousands were injured and dealt with long term health uh, effects from being at ground zero from firefighters, EMS, people, anyone who was around, who also was going into the buildings to try and search for survivors after. The towers collapsed one after the other. In comparison, I believe Pearl Harbor had like 3,400 lives lost, but the majority of those were military anyways, and these are civilian lives lost. It's a very difficult situation, and Feinberg volunteers himself. It was a really cool thing to the guy he's meeting up with agrees to it. He's like, sure, yeah, let's do it. And, and he's like, you got any other surprises for me? And Feinberg's like, I want to do it for free. Like, for for him, he doesn't want a government check at the end of all this. He's like, I'm doing this pro bono because someone has to do it. It's going to be a hard job. Might as well be me. So, yeah. So then he informs his whole office that, like, this is what they're doing. And he thanks them for all the hard work they've already done and the even more hard work that's going to be insurmountable. In the next few years beyond this, they have, I think, two years to get at least 80% of people to agree to this fund in order for them not to fail in the eyes of Congress.
0: Which realistically is such a short period of time, like to jump through all of these legal hoops and everything.
1: Feinberg develops this like formula system of determining people's wealth based on salary it's a lot of things they don't really dive into it very much which i think is smart for this movie because it's not necessary because it becomes like it's it's about the people and how how you treat them with respect and justice from this terrible incident i don't know what to call 9 tragedy it's just a
0: tragedy it's when stuff is beyond comprehension it's hard to find words
1: things yeah so like like Adam said like Feinberg has the kind of the multiple goals to help stave off an economic crash from a class action lawsuit of all the victims in a timely manner in a very short time period but also his personal goal to help bring some sort of closure and a sense of compensation because to him he knows the money doesn't matter but the the aspect of it brings a sense of closure i think at least at the in the in this part of the movie he doesn't fully realize that he's not fully seeing the closure side that's needed from this because of how fresh it
0: is for the victims and the families and it's not like there's any uh precedent at all and nothing no precedent even close he and his firm are
1: literally writing the playbook on this and he knows that Like he knows the government is going to look to this in future possible scenarios if something like this happens again or to scale. We also get introduced to um, it's one of his students, Priya Kundi, who was supposed to be working that day in the towers, but was late to work. She luckily survived, which is weird to say. But it's just we, we get that like all the interactions I think is really good because like people like don't know how to like express those things of like I was supposed to be there but I luckily survived but it feels wrong saying that and like everyone feels that but like everyone has
0: an understanding of like yeah I, I get that. It's the survivor's guilt like that's literally that's literally what it is by definition. So we
1: meet her and she she's kind of signed on because she no longer has a place to work. And Ken knows her because she was like top of his class. So she joins the team and she kind of helps us connect to the fix the fund that Charles Wolf kind of starts. But we don't learn of it until we get the first introductory meeting with the outline of this fund that Feinberg presents to everybody and it's at like one of their firm places uh so like they invite like at least a hundred people is what it looks like into the room I don't know
0: realistically what the numbers uh, were but it- in the movie that's what it looked like
1: it was probably honestly that big because it's a lot of people affected especially like firefighters you know because a lot of firefighters lost their lives that day because they were some of the first responders so he's trying to go through the packet plan that he and his team have made up that congress has approved because of course everything has to go through congress it has to be voted on because this is government federal money so it's a So they're kind of stuck to like what Congress has passed. And so they're busy trying to explain it. So then they can do interviews with people to get financial records. Because one of the big things initially, like Feinberg says to his team is we know how many people like we we have the list of people who were on the airlines, who were working at the Pentagon and some of the firefighters based on companies and people they've lost there like we can get those records easily the harder thing is who all that are in the towers like we don't know because those records are gone because they crumbled and fell like the so like teams of people go out and they go to all the missing missing people paper walls it's weird looking at it from like a a 2023 lens because it maybe it's the way they filmed it but it's very evocative of both the Vietnam and Korea war memorials in DC.
0: That's exactly what I was gonna say. Yeah. Specifically those two with the with the wall.
1: Yeah, you you really grasp in those moments. They're doing work and writing people's names down to try to contact those families because the assumption is that like these people are gone. If they're missing, they're gone. Like they haven't disappeared or anything. They're they're probably dead, which is really sad. And morbid to think about that in this meeting where he's trying to like tell everyone who are just everyday people like most of them are like everyday New Yorkers, right? They
0: understandably get outraged. There's no sensitivity to the way that he's approaching any of it at all, and it's like watching it. I was like, okay, I get, I get where he's coming from because I've been exposed to him as a person now, and I see. Like I know his I know his heart, I know his thoughts, right? But like this group of people that he's talking to does not, and therefore their reaction is absolutely justified. Like they think he's an asshole.
1: Yeah, they think they think he just works for the government and believes in the government's best interest when like he truly doesn't. The way he uses bad word choice because he he's not very good at public speaking is what we realize, especially to this large of a group who are very emotionally charged. He's in over his head, and most of these people don't understand what he's trying to communicate. And he does have the best intention to try to communicate that, but he's just failing so horribly. And it's really intense for the whole firm because they're losing the trust of the people in trying to even just as an introductory meeting to try to go over it. Because understandably, all these victims are dealing with, you know, the recent loss of the people that they've lost, as well as like the news cycle, especially lots of different news cycle, because some of the news cycle really gets on about how the, I mean, critically about the government covering themselves, going into a, a self-proclaimed war that not all of Congress supports, but the president through executive orders has enacted And just kind of forgetting about the people, which is like becomes a very central point in this movie that like the government keeps forgetting about the people and how many problems that happened that day and aren't owning up to the problems and providing adequate solutions and how to prevent it in the future. So
0: understandably, a lot of people are very upset and frustrated and and scared, because there was nothing at this time either that was like, how, like, you used the word prevent, but like, is it now prevented? Like, is there, is the, is there another imminent threat? Like, how do we know this isn't going to happen two months from now, let alone five years from now? Yeah.
1: And then we meet uh, Charles Wolf. We fully meet Charles Wolfe. We had a little snippet earlier because a lot of these more prominent characters that we see who have been affected that we kind of see uh, more and more of. The movie does a, a really very interesting storytelling perspective of the morning of and everyone going to work and leaving, but seeing it from the victim sides of the people who survived and lost people. And, and them at their home. And it's like, you know, Stanley Tucci's character, Charles Wolf, he's on his computer because he's become this like very big, going to get fully immersed in the new World Wide Web because it's in, it's the early days of the Internet. And he's saying bye to his wife who's going to work in the towers that day,
0: as well as the Donato's. Yeah, Frank Donato. And yeah, uh, his, it was his brother, Nick. And then he was Nick's Wife,
1: Karen. Yeah, we see Karen Donato with her family trying to, you know, get kids ready for school or whatever that day. And it's like a kerfuffle because she has like three sons, I believe. So there's just a a busy household and a small New York house, understandably. And then her husband, who's a firefighter, is like, see ya, late for work and leaves kind of thing. Which we learn later that he was on shift with his brother, his older brother. But yeah, so we meet... We meet Charles Wolf because he's late to the meeting. He's like, Am I late? And and Priya is like, No, no, no. It, I, we just started. Uh, here here's a packet if you need it. And he's like, Oh, I already have one. I printed it off the internet. You have a typo on page three. There's also a lot of things wrong. Like a lot of things need to be discussed, but you know, we'll get into that later. Like he he has respect to hear people out, but he's also very much no one is caring about us victims right like no one's caring about us as people and how we feel and the complications that it's not as easy just to put us through a formula and call it good like he understands that there is a system that needs to be put in place but he wants people to he wants the government mainly the only way he sees the government to actually listen just actually acknowledge the citizens that it's supposed to serve and protect is through Feinberg, right? It's like his his only avenue is to get through Feinberg and his firm to force them to tell all of their stories, essentially, which becomes a big thing of like, we need our stories to be told. Like, I don't care. Like, we'll, we'll sign up for the fund. We don't care what the money is. We just need people to know our stories. And that becomes very, very big with uh, the Donato's. Before like, you know, everything becomes more emotionally charged because Feinberg is very emotionally distant to everyone because he believes he has to be. This movie kind of just kind of keeps going on like we start getting everyone, everyone's stories right. We start doing the firm starts doing one on one meetings with people. They record them. So they either it's a stenographer that takes the words down Or they 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 start doing tape recordings because if I'm not mistaken, some of that stuff is presented to Congress at one point as well, which was a big thing because like Feinberg later made the smart choice of like we're going to record everything and present it to Congress
0: because they have to, which was so smart too though because it forces it forced their hand basically.
1: So yeah, the movie very much kind of like goes through hearing a lot of victim stories, and then we do get some special cases that come up so like there is a a man who lost his partner his gay partner uh, at pentagon because his partner was a civilian contractor at the pentagon but it's a very difficult situation because his his partner's family disowned this boyfriend because it's this homophobia what a
0: concept yeah they i mean they basically just refuse to acknowledge that their son was gay at all But then the conflict there too was that person who died, that partner who died, like his whole storyline, which adds like a whole nother layer into this case and everything, was that his residency was in Virginia. And so, like, that then becomes a whole thing because, due to the rules of the formula for the fund that Feinberg created, like, he, there is no compensation for him since his residency was. Outside of the city and stuff like that, uh, so that one kind of had like a double—I don't know—double potency. Yeah,
1: because it's 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 complicated because they have to follow state laws because they're they're trying to compensate everyone who who were affected by people they lost at the Pentagon, but they have to follow specific state laws, and it becomes Camille, who is kind of like Ken's partner at the firm, kind of takes this on as a, like a special case, of course, like. Initially, Feinberg's like no special cases; we can't make exceptions. But he, of course, has a change in perspective, um, which we'll kind of get into later. But I kind of want to dive into this like specific case because it's very important. So Camille kind of like takes on the special case, and she fights for it so hard because she even meets the man's family, his his parents. They're like very stereotypical, homophobic. These guys just come out of the woodwork when money's involved. They're a bunch of snakes and like very stereotypical of the time homophobia, homophobic verbiage. And it's kind of sickening. And like Camille is kind of like disturbed by it too and frustrated, which is like I see it maybe nuanced as the wrong word. But like this is also 2001 where like a lot of the like newer Uh, pride movement hasn't been a thing yet so it's like it's very 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 cool to see someone like trying to
0: make things right into yeah in 2001 specifically yes
1: because the boyfriend he has a recorded voicemail of his partner calling him and he didn't call his parents he called him and he's like hey hon i don't know if you heard probably like the craziness of new york but like and it's and it's." Hard to listen to. It is hard to listen to. Like when Camille's playing it in front of Ken at a part of the movie, he's like, turn it off. I don't want to hear this. Turn it off. Because he, he doesn't want to be emotionally involved into it because he doesn't want to be biased. But like with that special case, they managed to change New York state law to allow compensation to gay partners who would otherwise not be recognized by the state. But Tragically, Virginia state law wouldn't change at that time. And so, uh, the part that specific partner wasn't compensated, which is really hard. And all the money
0: went to his parents. It's fucking heartbreaking because that's it's not like that's some like plot point that they put in there just to be like, you know, tug on heartstrings. That's a real thing that fucking happened. And that's so fucking shitty.
1: It's 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 frustrating. And it's just it just shows just the flaws of, you know, politicians and government trying to do what they think's best for their citizens when it just feels like they're so distant in understanding of what its citizens need and want. So throughout all these like interviews and stuff, because this movie kind of just like hops through like all of these interviews and testimonies, we just see it becoming just everyone's getting more and more stressed and bogged down there becomes a really frustration butting of heads, especially between like Priya and Ken about like, we, we can't just stay objective to this. Like these are people with unique cases. Like we have to find ways to get solutions. Like they have, they do have small victories because Camille and Priya do meet up with immigrants who, who aren't fully citizen and th- they do the smart thing of like, None of this will criminalize you. Like this is purely confidential because we are a lawyer firm. None of this will be reported to the government. Which is so, so smart. Yeah, because that's like, that's what matters at the end of the day. Cause it's, it, that's a complicated issue because like, of course, most of these families had people probably working in the towers as like maintenance or janitorial staff, custodial staff, you know, like those smaller, lesser roles and they're able to compensate them and for those families like cuz it was like like the baseline started at $20,000 a person depending on salary and benefits and such and that's like life-saving to them which is beautiful like that we're seeing them actually wanting to do good and that are able to do good for some but like they're 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 like at like 15% of people who are signing off on the fund of the 80% goal they need so it's very stressful for them because it marks the end of everyone's career that works there if they fail this insurmountable
0: task that they volunteered for. It's that thing of like trying to celebrate progress and also realizing that like the progress isn't good enough. Like it's not enough progress.
1: because because Ken is dealing with the higher up CEOs and you know, super big Wall Street guys because he's fighting with Lee again because Lee is starting to try and build a class action suit. So he's trying to get people signed on. So of course he's contacting all the same people who are affected that, you know, Ken's also been contacting because they're, they're both trying to intellectually do the same thing, but through different means. But Ken knows like if a class action suit happens, these victims aren't going to see anything for like a good decade because, that that's how long class action lawsuits take bare minimum and it could take even longer than a decade because of just all of the evidence and testimonies that have to be taken and then they're debated over through court and court and court and it goes through multiple courts because it's a multi-state issue it's also a federal issue and like it's going to go to the probably to the supreme court at some point because of the special case that it is and Ken sees that as a a terrible pass and he's he's arguably right because it's just going to dredge on the tragedy of 911 for these people being stuck with it without the opportunity to grow and move on from it not the same to forget it but to you know
0: move forward from it yes feels weird to say the word slogan but like literally of nine eleven is never forget. And I feel like that is underlying theme throughout this, this whole film in the motivations of, you know, all the people at this firm. So Lee and the people he's representing of these
1: like high paid individuals want Ken to raise the money minimum for them because it's like the bonuses and the yada, yada. And Ken's like, those don't matter because those are so subjective and random and They could have a bad year or a good year. Like we can't, we can't adjust it for these highest earnings. And why does it matter? Like they're already getting paid enough anyways. And we do see like him do some of the small math, like at home trying to work on this. And like some people are getting like tens of millions of dollars. Some people are getting tens of thousands of dollars, you know, not millions, just tens of thousands. And you're like, that's, that's their whole life worth. And that sucks the movie does a good job of like giving us like timetable because it interjects with these title screens of like the month and year and how long till we have until the deadline. And then there's this beautiful scene where Ken's going to the opera and it's a 9-11 sponsored uh, event. It's a modern opera. So like he doesn't drive with it, understandably, but I don't think it's that he doesn't drive with it. I think he's too affected by it because he's slowly been... His neutrality has, yeah, has not been able to, to be
0: maintained.
1: The lyrics of the opera is like talking about what people have lost. It gets so simple as like a sock, but then to a home, to a loved one, to like, I am lost because people are very much like, I don't... From the perspective of Karen Donato, she lost her world
0: because that was her husband. It was a very pointed, but very beautiful opera for him to go, yeah, see, it, like stylistically. <laughs> and also it
1: very much gave me like Birdman vibes when he was in Birdman because of the lighting that were the flashing on oh, his face. Oh, sure. I could see that. <laughs> it was just a little weird thing, but it was just like, oh we're doing this. I'm like, you know, being theater background, I'm like stage light when it hits you like that, that far back in an opera house, but whatever. So he, he, he kind of walks out of the opera before it's finished because he kind of gets overwhelmed and he, he runs into Charles and Charles is like, Oh, I thought I might run into you here. I just can't get into modern opera. And they both kind of like agree of like, it's not like we don't hate it. Like It's just not our thing. Like, it's no Puccini, you know? (laughs) (laughs) But then they really start having this, like, conversation that kind of gets a little tense. But, like, it's trying to find some sort of common ground. Because, like, Ken knows. Like, he knows. And he, he explains to Charles, like, he knows this is a shitty situation. But, like, he has no other options because if he tries to change anything in the formula, which he's wanted to do since like day one, Congress would knock it around, take another three years to like try and redraft something new. And it might even be worse than what it initially was in the first place, because they're going to take it as an opportunity to do a bunch of stupid soapboxing about other issues and special issues and stupid stuff like that, because he truly just wants to help people as soon as possible. And it, And like, you know, Charles is like, why are you doing this anyways? Like, why'd you choose to do this? He's like, I volunteered. I'm, I'm doing this because I believe it to be my duty as an American to try to help in some sort of way from this tragedy, which is very poignant and strong emotionally. And that starts getting some understanding with Charles, but like Charles is very much of like, you're not talking to people yourself. Like you... We don't trust you because you're not there. It's it's your people. We think your your image to us is someone who's apathetic, who's distant, who who doesn't care about us as people. Like we just to quote Charles in this moment, we just want you know respect, acknowledgement. We want justice from this, and he like goes on the special cases of like. Because they also had a meeting in his office a little earlier in the movie where he's bringing up special cases that like he knows Ken has heard because he was on like he was in the room where his his people have talked to him because Charles has been talking to all these victims as well as some of the people who's worked at his firm like Priya has started going to these fix the fund meetings to hear out like why these people are upset And why they're choosing not to sign on to the to the September 11th Victim Fund, it becomes very important. Where like Ken starts getting a better like yeah, his his neutrality just kind of just washes away in this point because he's just like you are right. Like I, this is the character shift. Like this is where this is where that choice is made exactly because he he realizes this isn't as simple. Like these are people's lives. People's lives are complicated. They're messy. And he himself, who's, who's taken on Karen Donato's case, which has become a special case because we learn her husband had a mistress with two daughters. And so he was called by a lawyer of the mistress. And so he has this compli- complicated situation where, like, this victim's going to get more money, but it's split between two families, but it's substantially more because there's two more kids, right? And and because it's part of the formula, so he's stuck in this position where like he has to, to him, it's the right thing to tell her before it becomes public record in Congress. There, There's always good intention is what it seems uh, with all of these characters, lawyers who work at the firm to do the right thing. And so like that night, he just goes back to the office and he starts going through all of the case files and he like falls asleep in the office and people are like, oh... Oh, search party's over. He's here. Did you sleep here all night? he's like, we got stuff to do. Like, let's go. Let's contact people. Let's contact governors. Let's let's figure this out for that special this case and that case. And and it's just a whole change. And like they have like, I think it was like two months or something till the deadline at this point. And everyone's like, Are are you are you sure about this? And he's like, We're gonna work till the last day, you know, like we always do. And we're gonna keep working no matter what. We're not going to stop. And this is the right thing to do. And he's
0: like, are are you guys like,
1: okay with this? And they're like, we're ecstatic.
0: Yeah, it was that switch in him that like the rest of the firm needed to be like, okay, progress, moving forward, rejuvenated. Because everyone felt like they
1: couldn't do any further progress because they wouldn't be supported by the firm and like it could risk their jobs. Yeah, no, no captain. At that point, like so, it becomes this like big process of like listening to more people's st- stories, and because they can't rewrite what Congress put in place, which, um, to be clear, it's in the uh, what was it called, the Act of Congress in the Air and Transport Air Transportation Safety and System Stabilization Act. It's it's honestly like a really dumb act because it just tells what they're going to do, but not exactly how much or how they're doing. It's just like, we're going to do this thing and it's for the people. Please sign on. Like, that's what that act says. It doesn't really do anything else. It's just like an announcement act, which is really weird for a congressional act. But Ken is like, we can't change it, but we can find ways to navigate it to help people to the fullest of our abilities. So and he takes every case as a special case. He knows this is more work hours for people, but it matters because of all of these unique and special cases that just don't fit the the formula just perfectly. And like they get more and more people signed on, but like the biggest thing is like everyone who's kind of signed on following the fix the fund campaign that Charles has started, they won't budge until Charles budges. So he ends up having another run in with Charles and he's just straight up being like, and this is like a week or like two weeks left, I think before the deadline. And he's talking about how much good they're doing now and how much they're trying to help. Like they can't change it, but they are finding ways to help people in a more respectable way because of complications and the complexity of just human life in general. I mean, Charles is of course hesitant because he goes like, it's hard to convince how, how are you going to convince everyone who have this distrust and arguably hate for you when for the last 2 years you've just been so distant and you know neutral and objective to everyone and and he's like i i can't but you can so i'm here trying to convince you and he's just honest and i think charles takes that honesty as as gross even though it's like very blunt honesty and like it it shows that ken is just like this is my last you know this is my like my my last possible like i'm at my end here like this is all i've got left but he knows like charles has a meeting with lee and his firm and he's very much like this is what lee's gonna do he's gonna tell you that your wife was pregnant; that she was expecting, which is going to boost your rates. He's going to coach you. He's going to teach you when to tremble your lip at the right time when you're talk- telling your story. He's going to coach you through the whole thing. And Charles is like, "How do you, how do you know this?" And he's like, "Because that's what I would do. Because I am him." Like Ken fully believes that, like he is irredeemable because he's acted so much like Lee in comparison throughout this period of time and trying to get people to sign on to the fund, that he's like, I am irredeemable. And yeah, I'm doing this in the last bit of time I've got left. That doesn't make me a good guy. Like I still have a lot of growth and, you know, I have a lot of things to to fix further down the road. Like I know, I know I fucked up and I can't be forgiven instantaneously. I know that. So I'm just going to do the best I can forever now and keep working at it. And I think that like really shows for Charles and, you know, we get the classic, which is probably like more truer, but it's very Hollywood-esque it feels like of just like waiting for the mail to come in hope like, oh no, we need more people to sign on. And then it's just like next day they show show up to the office and everyone's in there and everyone's like signing off and he's just like, oh my goodness, this is great. And then like, you know, of course, he gets Charles's and he's like, thank you, Charles. And Charles, of course, is like, there's still a typo on page three. Get that sorted out. And Ken's like, yeah, no problem. And it's great because they end up at at the end of it. 97% of the victims, families, friends and loved ones have signed on to this. And this is historically accurate. It's been the most successful victim fund in U.S. history with a 97%. Sign on rate, I believe, it's like so. It like ninety people did not sign on of the almost two thousand or something. I think was is the actual numbers. Yeah, that's insane. It's quite historic for for that. I mean, of course, you know, it's been the basis of a lot of things. Uh, but also we kind of get a conclusion to the the notos because Ken Ken's been trying throughout the movie to talk to Karen to inform her properly about the mistress and the other children because the fund has to compensate them because there's DNA evidence and they're required to by law to compensate. And he's, he's fighting his, uh, his brother the whole time because he has a complete distrust and everything because he's, he's very much, he's got survivor's guilt for sure because his brother went back to go save him and I mean, he's he's very angry at a lot of things. He's angry at, you know, the system, at the, the response teams because of bad equipment that they've, you know, hounded about having such bad equipment for New York because radios don't work and such. And like that, that's cost so many firefighters lives because they've had bad equipment and couldn't hear necessary communications. Yeah, it's, it's, it's horrendous. And. His big thing is he wants people to hear that and know that so things can fix for these first responders because they're busy risking their own lives to try to save other lives. Yeah, so we have this like really rough confrontation and conversation that Karen overhears about the mistress and two daughters. And she's just like, at the end of the movie, she does come to the office and sign, sign on to the victim fund because she's like... She always knew he wanted daughters and that's like kind of a a big thing. There's an earlier conversation where her first pregnancy wasn't successful, but it was supposed to be a daughter and that was Eden. And it's very sad and hard In, in the context of everything that's very sad and difficult through this whole movie. And she just truly wants these kids to have a good life. And if they can get some of that money, then so be it. Why should she stand in the way of that, which is very mature and respectable a a lot of growth but like understandably she she has a lot of emotional turmoil because she knew kind of you know because she's she's a wife she like knew her husband was up to something it
0: it, this whole storyline for me just added a lot of just i keep using the word humanity and i'm going to use it a lot when i talk about my movie as well but like it's not like these people that were being advocated for weren't perfect human beings they were just human beings like the you know and so that the complicatedness of the donato dynamic just i think emphasized that these were just people so like she finds
1: out and you know signs on to the victim fund and like it's, it's overall successful and the movie just kind of ends like right there like we don't we don't get i mean it's already a long enough movie at this point and it's very emotionally you know it's a lot of emotional characters and you know, real stories throughout. So it's a good ending at that point f- to end at timing wise and pacing because it ends with, you know, the end title cards talking about how successful the fund was, how there has been later compensation for victims. I think it was like 2009 or 10 had one and then 2019 had one because of especially to people who've had, long-term health effects because um, that was one of the big things that they were trying to fight for but because of the this first initial fund, it was out of quote unquote scope because injuries had to be within 96 hours, which was even a fight to get there because Congress wanted 24 hours, which is fucking crazy. It's impossible and that's why it was set that way to begin with anyways, but there's been multiple funds later especially to those who have long-term health effects from working at ground zero and trying to save people's lives. Because, you know, when those buildings collapsed, that was a lot of asbestos in the air. So it really fucked up a lot of people, as well as, you know, you know, burns and things like that for people who got caught in the fires who made it out of the towers. But then, of course, this movie also ends talking about how Feinberg started a, a new firm from this. I think it's called like the Feinberg Fund, I believe. They've also been representing other cases, other big, big cases like uh, the BP oil spill, the Aurora, Colorado uh, shooting, uh, the Virginia Tech shootings, of course, the Pulse nightclub shooting in Florida, just a lot of like really difficult, huge losses of life and, and a lot of like potential big fallout things like Feinberg's been the go-to firm to deal with these special cases as a special master which is like really good because he clearly has and with this new kind of perspective of how to do it has a really good procedure and how to get it done because he he listens to the victims families and everything he he listens to them as. As human beings and make sure their stories get heard in some sort of fashion especially to Congress because I think that's what really matters and that helps put in like a checks and balances system because these sadly since 9-11 we've only had crazier and crazier types of outbursts of terrible tragedies and it's, it's honestly in the near future it's not going to go away so it's good to see that There are people who are fighting to make sure people get their justice in whatever form that is. And most of that is making people listen to the stories that need to listen to them. And that is like those people we elect to represent us in Congress and in DC. And that's what really matters the most. There's a really good quote I found from his wife was essentially saying like, even though Ken says that he tries to be... He, he tries to be understandably objective enough to assess the situation. But his wife calls out that like bullshit, because even throughout every case, he ends up being more and more empathetic with people in understanding the the tragedy and and listening to their stories and trying to help them to the best of his ability, no matter what, each and every time, which is very like endearing. And I love that. So there's this uh, list known as the blacklist for film scripts. It's it's not what you think it is. It's it, it's inspired, of course, of McCarthy era blacklisting writers and stuff like that. But it's this, um, I think it's like this film critic or journalist who who is black himself. So he made it up back in like 2005 initially. And it's essentially he would send out like a kind of like a poll or like he get like a response back from like big studio execs of like some of the best scripts they've read this year that are hoping they get produced at some point in the future. And this one was on the 2008 list of one of the best screenplays executives have read kind of thing, but it took, you know, a good decade to get made because it is a touchy subject, understandably, which I just thought was really cool because that's, I forget that list exists and it comes out every year. Cause he talks to studio execs every year kind of and it, like sends a pull out and be like, what's some of the best scripts you've read this year that you're hoping get a- adapted. And so you kind of like really see cool movies and stuff from that. And like, sometimes they haven't been made yet, you know? And it's like, Oh, that sounds like a really cool story. I hope it gets made soon because that one sounds like it would matter and being told. But yeah, let's hop into another very emotionally charged movie.
0: All right. So I, I'm prefacing this by saying like I really want to talk about this movie with the respect and like well-educated like cadence that it deserves so I I may jump around but it's because I, I really feel like. If I'm doing that, it's because I feel like I forgot something that was very important. So, this movie is Till from 2022. The director is Chinonye Chuku, and the writers are uh, Michael Riley, Keith Bocamp, and also Chinonye uh, Chuku. I did want to highlight one of the writers really uh, quick, Keith. Uh, Bowkamp, who I mentioned. So he actually, he was a large contributor of the research for this movie um, because the Emmett Till case is something that he has researched for over 27 years. Um, and he actually has a um, another film from 2005 called The Untold Story of Emmett Lewis Till. And it is a lot of his research and push that actually got this case to reopen in two thousand and four, so it was really cool that you know he he obviously had a hand in this film. So I'm going to talk less about like plot by plot point because I can honestly truly sum that up in a couple sentences, which is there is a fourteen year old black child named Emmett Till who lives in Chicago with his mom um, and grandma. And um, he, for a summer vacation, goes to Mississippi to visit some of his cousins. And while he is there in Mississippi, there is an encounter that he has with a young white woman um, who is running a convenience store. And ultimately, that encounter leads to him being kidnapped from his uncle's home in the middle of the night, three days after, where he is. Brutally tortured and eventually murdered by the husband and the uh, brother in law of that white lady from the convenience store. So, this movie kind of can split into what I feel like are two acts. Act one really is the events of Emmett Till going on vacation and, you know, to Mississippi, getting an idea of who Emmett Till was as a child leading up to his death. And then, act two, is a very heavy focus on everything that happened after that. And his mother, Mamie, is honestly more of a main character in this movie than Emmett Till is himself. A lot of that has to do with the just massive push in civil rights that she is single-handedly responsible for. So I guess where I'll start is what I think this movie did a really phenomenal job about is as somebody who knew this story before, and it it feels weird to call it a story because obviously it's a historical event. So as somebody who knew this historical event prior to watching this movie, kind of like what you mentioned Chandler uh, with your movie of like knowing what the outcome is of the movie, but still having to like sit through and watch it get there the movie in its direction really played on that. I'm sure that there are people who have watched this, who do not know the case of Emmett Till, in which case I'm very glad and grateful that they decided to watch this movie. Um, For, for those of us who, who are aware of this case um, and watch the movie, I feel like there was direction that played specifically to us uh, right out the gate. So for example, um, there's a, a shot right in the beginning of uh, Emmett and Mamie in the car, and they're listening to a song, and they are singing along and having a good time. You can literally hear my voice shaking because I I was so affected from this film. And I if I I, I told you ahead of time like I I'm gonna be emotional talking about this film. They're singing along uh, to the song and everything, and then again the the sound design in this is so beautifully done because we go from this like very well eq'd two-time you know radio jazz um, and all of a sudden it kind of just like warps into this jarring uncomfortable like tonal noise as we get a close-up on Mamie's face and you can just see she has like tears in her eyes but we haven't changed time like we're not we're not in a new you know, point in the story. We're still exactly where we are with her in the car and the singing with Emmett. And there's kind of this, like, the way I interpreted it, that was like, she knows what we know. She just doesn't know it yet. And that's kind of played on throughout this whole movie is like, she is so fearful of him going to Mississippi the whole time. Like she did not have a good feeling about it. From the start, and you know her, her mom, Emmett's grandma is is from Mississippi, and maybe specifically got to Chicago in order to not be, you know, in those more heavily. I'm emphasizing the word heavily. Uh, racist, heavily segregated areas, and her her mom, um, Emmett's grandma, who is uh, actually played by Whoopi Goldberg, kind of has a uh. A response of like, you know, he should he should go. Like it'll it'll be good for him, you know, it he'll be with his cousins. And also I, I should highlight um our our main character of uh Mamie Till Mobley is played by Danielle Deadweiler and is one of the most phenomenal performances I, I've uh, honestly seen. And Emmett Till is played by Jalen Hall we get a really good sense of like who Emmett is as a, a, a human being um, right out the gate. You know, he's he's goofy. He loves to have fun. He's a big personality in the room. But we also learn that like he has a stutter kind of early on. He's singing to a, a you know, commercials used to be songs all the time with little jingles. And so he's singing to it and like, his grandma and his mom are like in the room and um his mom's uh I guess partner, boyfriend man, which I'll get into later as well, is there and they're all just like, you know, you didn't you didn't stutter one time when you just did that and like really like hyping him up. And and again, like I think that a lot of times these cases and specifically like civil rights era stories and events are really relayed to us as like things that happened forever ago, and the the scary and horrible reality of it is that these things did not happen that long ago. The the actual murder of Emmett Till was on August twenty eighth, nineteen fifty five. Like one of the things that I like thought about was my dad had his eighteenth birthday eight days before Emmett Till was murdered. That just like puts into perspective, I think and it's 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 shitty when people have to be able to like you know put put place something in context within their own lives but i I feel like that also helps really emphasize like this wasn't that long ago this you know there were <laughs> pictures were in color, you know like there there was television in color with you know products that we use today, like this wasn't this wasn't a hundred years ago,
1: the movies. Is- at the get-go really pushes like society as well it's it's it doesn't do it in like rose tinted glasses or in a picturesque way. It's very much like even in Chicago, there is racism, there is prejudice it's there because uh Mamie's taken Emmett to a department store to get some shoes and and a wallet. He ends up picking out a wallet, and immediately Mamie gets stopped by. An employee that seems like he's more of a security guard because he was probably hired as more of a security guard. And he's like, Are you sure you didn't find something you want down in the basement? And she's very much a strong woman, a strong black woman in this time. And she's like, Nope, I found what I just need up here just fine. Thank you, sir. And of course, it's got the what they had to do, especially throughout this time, anywhere they were in a predominantly white place be respectful to the white people you know and have the specific tone and cadence and how they spoke because if they said something just slightly off it, well,
0: i wouldn't even yeah i wouldn't even say respect like it was a it was a forced like subs, like uh, you know subservience like that yes that was mandatory and it's it's contrasted very differently like the way that i mean the way that it was in chicago versus the way that it was in Mississippi and the movie does a really good job at showing like these are two sides of the same coin. You know, like it's existing in both places. It's just different on how it's existing. I also think it's worth highlighting that this is the first movie where this case has been portrayed in a, a non-documentary style film. Again, I'm very grateful that there was so much research. Um and one of the things that um, I looked into, as we as I've said in the last couple um episodes, and obviously, our imitation game chat and everything was like I was I, before I even picked this film, um, I was looking into how historically accurate it was and and how, you know, who was consulted and everything and um Simeon Wright, who is one of Emmett Till's cousins, and also he was an eyewitness to the events that happened in the convenience store was a consultant on this film, um, until he passed away in 2017. So he was also a a large contributor to make sure that this story was told the way that the the story should be told. The first half an hour of this movie is the audience sitting in in an uncomfortable anticipation of what they know is coming. We even get a, a scene, um, as Emmett's in Mississippi with his cousins, his cousins work on a cotton farm. They pick cotton, and this is at a this is at a time where, um, his uncle, um, who goes by a uh, preacher, he essentially shares the profits with like the plantation owner. Um, so it's we're not at a you know we're not in a, a slave era currently. Um, but it's very clear that like, obviously the black people are the ones in the fields picking all of the cotton and the white guy who owns the plantation house is taking the majority of the profits. And then, um, preacher is able to take what's left and go sell it at market and, and make money for himself. And while Emmett is out there, he's like not helping at all. Um, he's, he's goofing off, you know, he's, he's trying to get everybody to laugh and people are having a good time, but it it does result in preacher basically being like, "All right, like I'll take you back up to the house." Like clearly, this isn't clearly this isn't the move for you. So once you know that day is has come to its end, Emmett and his cousins go to go, They want to go buy candy, and that is what how they wind up at the Bryant's Grocery and Meat Market what is interesting and the, and the movie kind of shows this, but historically it's documented as well, that like the main clientele of the Bryant grocery and meat market was, was black folk outside. They had like checkers and chess set up. And there were some guys like playing and uh, a couple of his, Emmett's cousins went in, bought candy, whatever. And Emmett went in by himself. He, he reached into like the bubblegum gum jar uh, to, to, get some candy. And uh behind the counter is uh Carolyn Bryant and um she is uh the white woman um and I think that the ages of people in this story are important. Um I keep emphasizing Emmett is a 14 year old child. Um Carolyn Bryant is a 21 year old young woman. The the part this there are a lot of conflicting accounts of what actually happened in this moment. Uh, Some of that conflict is obviously you have white people giving one account and you have black people who were there giving a different account. And some of the conflict is also not necessarily knowing like what the intention behind certain things that Emmett did were. So I will get into that briefly. Um, In the movie what happens is Emmett sees Carolyn and comments that she looks like a movie star, opens up his, she's she says like, excuse me, like very faint, taken aback that he would even try to talk to her. And he like opens up his wallet that his mom just bought him 20 minutes ago in the movie. And he has a picture of, uh, you know, a white woman in his uh, wallet and is shows it to her and is like, see, he buys the bubble gum, and it's at this time that his cousins are like, oh shit, he probably shouldn't be in there by himself. Like, someone go, just you know, go make sure he's okay. Like, go grab him, whatever. So one of the younger cousins goes in and like pulls him out, and and, and Emmett's like trying to say like thank you as he's being like rushed out the door, and Carolyn Bryant comes to like the entryway of the store, and Emmett Till wolf whistles she's so taken aback and she immediately starts going to her truck and all of the guys who are out there, are like she's going for a gun. She's, we gotta, we gotta go. We gotta go. And they all pile into the car. The last shot of that scene is them driving away as fast as they can. While Carolyn Bryant has a pistol aimed at the the back of the car, the conflicting accounts are, you have white people saying that Emmett Till was making very clear advances towards Carolyn Bryant and that is her account and her account of the story also drastically changed um, by the time she actually got to trial and to the time that she died, which was, I believe only a year or two ago. The part that is also disputed is Emmett Till having a picture um, of a white woman in his wallet So you have white folks saying that he was bragging about having had sexual encounters with white women before. Mind you, again, he is a 14-year-old child. And showing people the picture in his wallet and saying that that was his white girlfriend back home. There was another account from a white person saying that he actually did not have a, a picture of just like a random like one singular white woman in his wallet, and that instead it was like a class photo of an integrated class and then you have uh his cousin uh Simeon Wright, who basically went on the record to say that like there was no photo at all like uh, it, there there that didn't happen, and that the whistling did happen but that no one really could definitively say what he was whistling at or what the whistle was for. It's all kind of a lot of hypothesis. Um, there is the hypothesis that he was whistling at Carolyn Bryant, and his, his cousins kind of went on record of saying he was always trying to make us laugh. He was always trying to get some sort of rise out of us. So, you know, it, it could have been that. Um, there was another account that he was actually whistling at the uh, checkers or chess game that was happening like right next to him. And there is the third um, opinion, which is that his mom actually taught him to whistle in order to get past his stutter. He specifically had a hard stutter when it came to pronouncing bees, and he was getting bubblegum. And so there is a ha- hypothesis that he might have been whistling under his breath in order to try to get the words bubblegum out to actually get the candy um, and pay for it. But that is the big event that, that set everything off. Um, so they get out, um, Emmett and his cousins, they get out of there as quickly as possible. Let's reiterate, he's a 14-year-old kid. Literal kid. And you have a 21-year-old adult woman who is now in a... Busy, and immediate response is to grab a pistol and threaten these children's lives.
1: And and to put in some also additional details is Carolyn's also a mother of two children, I think, too. A new young mother of two children at 21. Like, yes, it's a different time, but she is a 21-year-old mother.
0: And where some of these different accounts are coming from are people who were in the store, and one of those people were her i believe sister in law who was watching the kids in the in the back of the store, so it was not even in the store when it uh, or like you know in the main part of the store when any, any of this happened, but was technically quote unquote present so three days go by, and we know that because um, the cousins are out at some sort of fun you know function whatever and they're kind of talking about it. And one of Emmett's cousins is a little bit more standoffish to him now because he's like, you don't get it. Like he's, he's clearly older. It's probably like closer to 18. And he's like, you can't, you're not, he actually has a quote of saying like, you're not white. You're one of us. And that kind of sets a, a tone of like how he, how I I, it very clearly was from a point of fear about how Emmett was acting and this encounter. And Emmett says like, relax, like it's been three days. Like, you know, everything's fine. And this, uh, I I forget which cousin it is, but is basically like, that's because nobody knows your face around here. Like that's the only reason that like you're okay and that we're okay and that everything's okay. And it is literally that night and by night it's actually, um, it's speculated to be between two o'clock to three thirty in the morning, somewhere in there, where Carolyn's husband and brother-in-law, Roy Bryant and J.W. They pronounce it Milam, show up at um, preacher's real name is uh, or, or full name is Moe's Wright. Um, so they show up at the the Wrights' cabin. They burst their way inside, um, and they are specifically looking for. Emmett and they are obviously throwing around um, the n-word slur profusely um, it happens basically at this point through the rest of the movie by like the, the white people in the film moving forward and so uh, you know they say that they're they're looking for that n-word who did the talking they get up the they get upstairs and they find Emmett and they tell him to throw his clothes on and the whole time preacher is trying to be like, please, like you don't have to do this. He's not, he's not from here. He doesn't like know better. He's a child, like really trying to like reason with him. Preacher's wife even offers to like pay them, like, like give them money. Like she she says like she'll whoop Emmett herself so that he never, you know, does anything like this again, whatever. And their response is basically like they'll teach him the lesson themselves. Right before they like leave, they basically have Emmett tied up in the back of a truck and Preacher kind of makes one last attempt. And I believe it's Milam who turns around, aims a pistol at Preacher and is it, it basically threatening him. In real life, what happened in that moment was Milam asked Preacher how old he was. And he had said 64. And Milam said, if you say anything, you're not going to live till 65. That dialogue did not happen in the movie, but obviously the that, that event did.
1: I also really respected that they stayed very historically accurate in this moment as well, because Bryant and Millum also had um, some other African Americans helping them because
0: they were paid by them. They were um, they reportedly never confirmed, but reportedly worked for Milam. Yeah, and.
1: By the time, like after this and when it this kidnapping got a lot of public exposure, um, it's reported not fully confirmed, but definitely suspected that Bryant paid them off and got them travel outside the state. So they couldn't be found to be witnesses for testimony in court if it would go to court, which it eventually
0: did. Then we get it's done in a really subtle I I guess is maybe the best word to say it way in that you as the audience know the characters in that moment, the people know that Emmett's not coming back. Like there's this, there is this really intense feeling of helplessness and it's helplessness as an audience member. It's helplessness as a, as the people in, in the movie and, he gets in the back of the car and he gets thrown in the back of the truck. It is the is the other black people in the back of the truck who are holding him down and tying him up. I believe it's Bryant who asks, like, Carolyn, is this the one who from the store or whatever? You see her kind of turn around from the, the front of the truck and look through the glass in the back and look at Emmett and like nod her head yes and say like, yeah, that's the one. That is something that is not necessarily confirmed In real life, someone definitely confirmed that they heard the question being asked, like, is this the one from the store? But no one was able to confirm whether it was a a male or female voice. Um, The only account is that, quote, it was lighter than a man's voice. So it's not actually confirmed whether Carolyn was in the truck at that moment. Bryant and, and Milam said on record that Emmett confirmed himself that he was the one who was at the store, which take what they say with a grain of salt, obviously. So our next scene is we have a very distant shot of this like farmhouse barn. And there are just these really um, distant screams and sounds of, of abuse. It's it's hard to find the way to talk about this scene because the words that I are coming to my brain don't feel appropriate. I want to say like it was tasteful, but like what does that mean? What does that imply when I use that word? You know what I mean? Like I think w- what was impactful about this movie was that Chuku was really specific about what violence was shown and what violence was not. And I think that there is absolutely a place for an Emmett Till movie where you make your audience sit through the uncomfortability as much as possible and and really show them what this was. But at the same time, there does not need to be more Black trauma movie stuff. and, And... I would argue that this movie is not for black people. This movie is for a white audience to watch, and I think that that's important
1: yeah it's it's definitely made for the people who have either forgotten or don't know this story because they haven't been taught this story because this the story is very important this This is at the apex to the True violent and i only say violent because it was met with violence start of the civil rights movement like yes like work was being done in in the you know almost hundred years at that point from when uh the emancipation proclamation was made but not a lot of progress for equality was made especially with the interruption of the first uh two world wars of course or sadly gets in the way of progress. So especially since World War II, a lot more progress was being made because this is 55. So I believe this is only a year after the Brown v. Board of Education conclusion with the Supreme Court was made where Thurgood Marshall argued at the Supreme Court for the desegregation of schools. Yeah, so this is very much the early... For for lack of a better word, the early days of the civil rights movement, even though it's an ongoing movement, it's just what we dub in history as the biggest era of the movement of progress being made because not only of the additional acts and constitutional amendments made during this era, but as well as the onslaught of violence met with the progress trying to be
0: made. So that, that scene ends, that, that shot ends in silence. And we understand that Emmett has been lynched. It's been murdered. We have a witness to those noises and a witness to seeing the Black men who were helping Bryant and Milam clearly put something in the back of their truck that is suspicious. They don't get into the specifics of the torture and abuse that Emmett Till went through until he was shot, but they, they do say that he was, you know, shot. The, the movie made it kind of appear that he was shot at, the, at that, like, barn. He was actually shot near the river um, that they threw his body into something that they do not include in the movie that I think is important to, sh- to talk about because it is the epitome of what a barbaric and just like, just they didn't care. They don't, they did not see black people as people is that they tied a 70 pound fan around from a cotton gin around Emmett Till's neck using barbed wire. And that's how they threw him into the river after shooting him. And that was not... I mean, and before that, he went through significant torture and abuse. That is kind of what takes us into the second act of this movie because Mamie gets, you know, the call that Emmett is missing, not that Emmett is dead. And so at this point in time, we get... Uh, some politics start to come into play with like civil rights leaders um, and the NAACP and things of like talking about how Preacher knew that that Bryant and Milam obviously took Emmett but that the most that they could get charged for would be like a kidnapping charge basically and we were getting you know prayer circles and all of a sudden Mamie's dad shows up and we learned that He has left the family at some point to pursue another woman. And he's like, you know, I know your mother and I aren't together anymore, but you should still call me. And um, it is at one of these gatherings as everybody is just kind of constantly coming in and out of Mamie's home to try to comfort her, to try to, you know, do all this stuff. A woman comes in and tells Mamie that she got a call from a reporter and that that he didn't want to tell Mamie himself and that they found Emmett's body. Mamie passes out. We get this kind of close-up shot of her. Just, It was such a, a profoundly moving moment and she passes out. The next thing we, we get basically is she has the body um, sent back to Chicago.
1: Prior to all this, contextually, ever since being informed of it initially being a kidnapping, she was immediately put in touch with the NAACP through um, Rayfield Moody. Yeah, Rayfield Moody or, arranges a meeting with um, William Huff of of the NAACP chapter in Chicago, knowing like this is time sensitive, but also uh, the NAACP. Of course, are gonna try and get as much media coverage on this as possible because it's it's part of the agenda to you know progress recognition to black lives and black rights and black issues for all Americans um, because information is power, especially in a political movement
0: and this is also the first time that we get an interesting look at how Mamie is getting treated because she has two ex-husbands and they reference Emmett's father um, earlier in the movie. The way that Emmett, is, his body is identified is because of a ring that he was wearing that was his father's engraved ring. And we, we learn that his father died overseas in Italy during the war But Huff starts to kind of grill Mamie a little bit about her previous relationships and the fact that she has her fiancé with her. I'm going to say fiancé because there was talk about them getting married. And before Emmett left, one of the things he said was like, "Now don't go getting married until I'm back. And yeah, so so she meets with Huff from the NAACP. and, And again, a moment of just being unnaturally strong in the face of adversity, even against Huff being like, you're asking me a lot of questions that have nothing to do with the fact that my son is missing. So that that prefaces her, obviously finding out that Emmett has died. It was Preacher that identified the body um, at the river and Emmett's body gets sent back to Chicago on a train in just a wooden box. And there is... The whole family friends community, who are basically dressed in black at the train station, Mamie is in a wheelchair because everyone is obviously very concerned that she is going to pass out again because how, how could you how could you not that That scene was really, really rough to watch as well. just just watching a mother cry trying to grip the the wooden box that her dead son's body is in. It's at this time that um, Mamie and her soon-to-be-husband, um, who's Gene Mobley, are in like a, a coroner's office. And they have a sheet over Emmett's body. And the, the coroner basically goes to say, like, I, I need to prepare you. And Mamie's just not having any of it. Um, she's like, just remove the sheet. You can already tell that something is wrong because Mobley and the coroner both kind of have like handkerchief up to their nose, indicating that there is clearly some sort of smell that is happening, but Mamie does not. Um, She is just standing there very, very stoic. The coroner removes the sheet and they see his body But at this point in time, the audience does not. Um, The way that it's shot is there is like a steel table directly horizontal with the body. So we as an audience are only seeing their reactions first. Mamie says, everyone leave us. And you very quickly understand that she means leave her and Emmett and the coroner and Mowgli leave the room. And it is at that time that there is a a slow tilt to the camera and we see the reveal of Emmett Till's body. I distinctly remember and still have them in my brain, like the real photos of what his body looked like, the special effects, the whatever, you know, prosthetic, Creation, I'm sure it is a whole bunch of all of that put together in the movie was spot on to what those original photos looked like. It is. It was another moment that was just like very uncomfortable because it's supposed to be to sit through, and you're watching Mamie do something that is taboo, which is she touches the body of her dead son because he is so unrecognizable that like she she pulls the sheet back even further and like touches his ankles and touches his knee and eventually just winds up like sobbing over his body this body is beaten beyond any comprehension and on top of that it's swollen it's been in a river for 3 days you know, when a body's been in a river for three days, you can only imagine what what that is on top of it. I feel like that scene lasted the perfect amount of time. I don't feel like it was lingered on for too long. I also don't feel like it was cut too quickly. I feel like it was perfect. It's cut with the next scene basically maybe being like, it's going to be an open casket. But the way she says it is, she says um, a sentence about how like people need to see him. And Mobley is like, what do you mean see him? And she's like, I want an open casket. The coroner even steps in and, and is like, uh, and they're, they're trying to convince her like he's not in a state to be seen. And she says like, nobody is going to believe me that this is what he looks like. And so everybody needs to see it. The coroner tries to be like, can I at least like try to fix him up a little bit? And she's like, no, maybe Till Mobley had an open casket with Emmett Till's body. That is where the photos, um, the majority of the photos I'll say that exist came from is from the open casket service that was had. There's also the, um, I think at the coroner's office after
1: they got him dressed up in a suit, she did. Like the movie depicted, invite a photographer to take a photo with him in the in the morgue, um, and that's where we have that very very emotionally charged photo and historical photo that they that they reenacted in this film, which I think was a smart choice to keep us immersed because like that photo did circulate newspapers and magazine magazines initially that did sweep the nation and caused a lot of uproar as well as the following, like, I want to say it was like only a few days that they did the funeral later. Uh, another,
0: I think really beautiful sound design moment that f- fucked me up. Just absolutely wrecked me was at the service. There had been some tension with Mamie and preacher because preacher hadn't really like shown face yet. And obviously there, it's, that was due to like a lot of guilt and his wife and, and kids came to the to the service his wife was talking to Mamie and was basically saying like I I can't look at him like I'm sorry I tried I tried everything when they came and she was just like I'm so sorry and she's like but I I can't I can't look at him and Mamie says we have to not you have to says we have to her reaction to seeing The body was was heartbreaking. One of the things that I was reading, Keisha Tillis, actually, is the the name of the the woman who plays Preacher's Wife Elizabeth. One of the things that I was reading is that the director, uh, at least in the morgue scene, did not let Danielle Deadweiler see the body before that scene. And so that reaction to seeing it was like a very authentic initial. Response, um, kind of in that moment. So Elizabeth White's character, um, uh, her breakdown, seeing that body, immediately followed by the church choir starting to sing. That breakdown matched up with the church choir starting to sing. It is well with my soul, and it's starting very soft, and the whales being so loud and then that them kind of fading opposite. So the whales start to get quieter and the, the church choir starts to get louder. And I was just no part of me I think wasn't crying during this movie as a whole, but that moment in particular was so powerful. That was really our our jumping off point for all of the work that that Mamie started to do. Basically, they wound up, due to all of this press and the open casket and working with the NAACP, Roy Bryant and Milam were charged with murder, not just kidnapping, which they even make a comment of saying that the fact that they were even charged with murder in the state of Mississippi is unheard of. Mamie decides that um, she is going to go out to Mississippi to help represent Emmett at the trial and give a testimony
1: because this is where she's talking with Moody again on the porch because Moody visits and he tells her that it would help the case with her testimony, but Mamie is also very much like i i need mrs Bri- miss bryant I need Mrs. Bryant to also be charged with his murder because she is the one who started this whole
0: string of events yeah she says like my son is dead and mrs bryant's lost her job like got fired like how are those things equal so there's a there's a tough conversation between maybe and mobley about how he should not come with her because when she gets on the stand you know she says basically they're gonna call me a, a or try to depict me as a as a jezebel and she was like i i can't I can't have that be the focus. I can't like allow that to become the narrative. She winds up going um, with her father. So her dad goes with her to Mississippi. Right off the bat, the whole scene when they get to Mississippi is horrible. It's just horrible. They kind of like show up in front of the courtroom. I, in my research, I couldn't find whether this was something that actually happened. I would not be shocked in the slightest if if it did, obviously, but um there was some press outside of like the the courthouse and um Mamie goes to speak and basically goes to say like I'm here too and like gets cut off because then there is gunfire. But it is children playing with little cap guns and specifically it is white children pretending to shoot at like the black people who are there. And the black people are few and far between who are attending this courthouse. That's just one of those moments where you just get so angry, and but also like having to check yourself as an audience member and being like, "That was a eight year old kid, like the the character they just showed on screen who decided to take a fake gun and pretend to shoot Mamie was an eight year old child." But it also shows like just how ingrained it it was at this time that like the, the lack of care for, for black lives, they referenced it in the movie with very similar words, but also, you know, there's a, there's a a quote that was given that was basically like at this time, it was considered open season on, on black people. Like it, it, it was, it was a sport. No one, no one cared that I think was emphasized in that moment of having these little, Kids just going around with their fake guns, pretending to like kill black folk. So they get ushered into the courtroom, and immediately the defense uh, requests a recess because of some supposed other witness. So literally, maybe came all the way here from Chicago, and day one in the morning they go to start this trial, and they sit down. Court has just started. Defense requests a recess for bullshit, fake reasons. The prosecution objects and the judge is like denied that D- doesn't even think twice about it. Like the judge very clearly has thoughts that the entire jury is white men because of 1955. Yeah. At least all older than at least Milam and Bryant, which um, I-, I mentioned Carolyn's age was 21. Roy Bryant, her husband was 24 and uh, Milam was, I believe 35 or 36, just to throw some more ages out. And so there's genuinely nothing they could do about it at that point. Court is just adjourned. But it's at this time that in the movie, Mamie looks over and sees Carolyn holding one of her children, which is a son. A lot of the really powerful moments in this movie, I would argue, are the ones with no dialogue and just the emotion that's getting conveyed. And so Mamie requests that, asks Moody to take her to the the storefront. And so they wind up going to the storefront and she's like, So this is where it happened. And there's kind of a surreal flashback fantasy esque moment of like Mamie watching what happened with Emmett and Carolyn, like through the closed shop. Which was a, a really beautiful moment, but obviously very difficult. During this uh, recess, um, <laughs> there's kind of like a, I don't know, a a, a, a non-procedural um, way that the the prosecution found a a witness to Emmett's murder, and that gentleman's name was Willie Reed, and they kind of just show up at. It's like a group a group of people show up at his house and try to get him to like come out. It's the middle of the night, like it's all very undercover. Clearly it's like his dad or some male figure, like answers the door and while that guy's talking, he like Willie Reed is running out the back and they manage to get him.
1: Between all this, Mamie's been staying in a different town. It's a it's a black run town which has been kind of like this haven for Black people. It's like Black businesses, Black representation, and the the NAACP kind of like work out of this with the prosecution for this case, knowing that everyone's lives are at risk, so they need a safe place to stay. This is where they also bring Willie, because, yeah, that scene was was weird because we see we see Medgard Evers, which we've met earlier because he's kind of been like the driver for Mamie throughout he he straps himself with a pistol and we're like, what is what is going on? What is happening? Yeah, it's very confusing, but it's it's understanding it's they know the risk from having already had to do these kinds of things for the last few years in these cases, especially in Mississippi because Throughout the movie, we hear that a reverend and another uh, black man were also murdered, lynched. There there tried to be cases in court for them, uh, but they fell through because of the racism of Mississippi towns and Mississippi in general during that time. So, of course, they're on edge trying to get Willie and, you know, Willie has stayed quiet because he knows if the defense knows he's a witness that his life is at risk. And even further, his family's life is also at risk. So it's a big risk to get him
0: and they bring him to this town. And part of the risk as well is that cabin house, whatever that they go to get him on is, is on farmland that's like on that property. So like that was part of the undercoverness as well was like, you you can't wake up the house three house down because then everyone's everyone's going to be screwed. So when it's documented that when preacher took the stand that that was like unheard of the heroism that he showed because when he was asked if he knew J W Milam he said not by name and they said well what do you mean by that and he says like I know him as one of the men who broke down my, you know, door and pointed a pistol at my family and kidnapped Emmett. And they were like, and is that, is that man here? And he stood up and pointed directly at JW Mylon. To do that at that time, as a black man who lived in that town was beyond comprehension. Luckily,
1: that moment was captured on in a photo, which was breaking the rules of the court because one of the first things the judge said, no photography of any kind, because of course they want to hide as much terribleness in, in photographic evidence. So someone snuck a photo in of that moment
0: because of how profound and brave and courageous it was willie reed gave the best testimony that he could but you know he really got grilled Uh, obviously all of the white people who were in that courtroom just had an air of like superiority it did so
1: well in depicting these southern courtrooms on these kinds of cases during that time because it's it's the majority of white people like they barely leave any seats for blacks if at all If it had a balcony, they would usually put African-Americans in the balcony seating or they would stand in the back like they did in this movie. But because this case had such public attention nationwide, they had some seats for black reporters up front. But it was like only eight chairs or whatever. But like the whole courtroom is like it's like a fucking minstrel show because it was entertainment for the white town folk.
0: They were like laughing, making snide comments, and like it was just accepted because that's how it that's how it was.
1: Because it, it's still the mentality that they think people with a different skin tone are lesser than them. Like you can hear like the monkey jokes being, you know, occasionally shot out.
0: Yeah, from people in the yeah, just watching people who are just sitting, not even reporters. So then it is after those two, Mamie gives her testimony about how she could identify the body because before her, we get a, it's the sheriff of the town and he makes a, a disgustingly snide comment about how like, no, he couldn't identify the body because it was like so, you know, messed up. He was like, honestly, you couldn't even tell if it was white or black. And like very clearly was trying to just throw this case Then, after he was already excused, and again, there's no repercussions to any of the white people not following the rules, he looks at Mamie and and says, You want to know what I think? I think this is a plot by Mamie and the NAACP to like blah, 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 basically just like conspiracy theory. And so, for Mamie to go up there and start talking about how she was able to identify her son's body and talks about that moment in. The coroner's office and touching his body, and gives a really beautiful—I want to say monologue, but I don't mean monologue in the sense of like something that was written for this movie. I mean just like a chunk of dialogue. Like this is this is the dialogue that was truly you know delivered in real life, and about how like a mother just knows, and and she's like when you have have held a, your child every day since the day that they were born when you touch your child you know they go on to ask her about like life insurance policies which was so dumb and about like well you know uh did you ever teach him how to conduct himself amongst like white people and like again gives just such a i i just i i I wish there was a better word than, than strong, but just just a very clear, she knows the game that she has to play into, but she is also not going to back down from this position of getting her son justice.
1: And she plays on the expectations by being so, so eloquent in the word choice and delivery of the answer she's giving to the defense to really you know play against the shitty assumption that black people are so unfortunate and less educated and lesser especially in this mississippi courtroom and it's just it's such a strong scene because that whole scene from from the prosecution asking her questions to the defense asking her questions it's the camera's just on her and it's a slow pan from a profile to a straight on close up it's just so strong to see the emotional journey that she has to go through to just be on stand in this courtroom because it starts like being this like very emotional mother like mother feeling of knowing your child like relaying that emotion to anyone in that room to try to create any semblance of positive change And then to immediately have to do a 180, keep her cool because the defense is going to try to rile her up, to get some sort of edge into her, to make her seem she's unstable and play on this narrative that black people are, you know, these unstable
0: animals and shit. Even right before she like was asked to step down. That's exactly what the defense did because they sh- intentionally showed her a photo of when Emmett was young and then asked her to identify when it was taken and she knew exactly when it was taken and then immediately followed it up with a picture of his dead body. Again, it was a game. They were trying they were trying to to get arise out of her and and upset her and and all of that and she did not break until she got down off the stand following her testimony was Carolyn Bryant
1: as she went on stand they excused the jury because they knew all of it would not be admissible in court because it's a complete utter fabrication bullshit story of nonsense that
0: infuriates the fuck out of me literally how rigged and and that doesn't even feel like a strong enough word, but just how rigged everything was. Like excusing the jury and then the judge being like, Yeah, well, we've heard everybody else's story, side of the story, so we might as well hear Miss Bryant's. Like just being like, Well, we let the black people talk. So of course we're gonna let Miss Mrs. Bryant speak and share whatever she has to say. Like it was fucking horrid. And this is where the story changes. Everything that was documented up until the trial was all about what Emmett said to Carolyn. It was all about words and verbiage. When Carolyn got on the stand, all of a sudden, now this 14-year-old child gripped her hand and was trying, like her wrist, and was trying to like make sexual advances on her and telling her about his previous... Interracial, you know, sexual encounters. And then when she ripped her hand away, how he then like followed her and pinned her hand like behind her back and like grabbed her by the waist. And that one of his like cousins came in and had to like forcibly pull him out of the store. And up until this point, like never was anything on the record of having been physical. And obviously the things that they said, Emmett said were also not real, but this is just like the first time that all of a sudden now he, as a 14 year old child, was making sexual advances and managed to like overpower this woman and and all this stuff. And in the middle of this, of her testimony, which wasn't even a real testimony because the jury was not even in the room, Mamie walked out Because she was just so angered by everything. And it was either her father or it was Evers who was like, Do you wanna go back in and hear the verdict? And she says, I already know what the verdict is. And then they left and they are in the car driving. They're listening to the the results of the trial over the radio. And it says, you know, after less than an hour of deliberation, Bryant and Milam were found not guilty. And the radio program even said, they are celebrating in the courtroom with like laughs and, and cheers. We then wind up basically jumping time in the film and start to see Mamie's involvement, heavy, heavier involvement with the NAACP and attending rallies. And in the specific one that we get, uh, she's, you know, talking about the injustice of the Mississippi court systems and victim blaming and and trying to get equal justice and the movie ends in a really lovely kind of like she goes back to chicago she's in her house she is just sitting on her bed and it's a really beautiful shot of her basically completely in silhouette and everything else just kind of lit up behind her and she puts a record on and it's again, it's a it's a jazzy callback to that car ride from the beginning of the movie. She gets up and she starts walking around and she walks into Emmett's room and she, again, we have one of those, it's not a flashback so much as it is like a fantasy moment of like Emmett in perfect condition, standing in his room, smiling at her. And that is really the end of the movie. We have a post credit scene um, in this film as well, in that, Mamie's actions are the reason that the Civil Rights Act of 1957 happened. It was everything to do with her and pushing this case um, for her son. I have other things to say that are not mentioned in the movie, really, in our post credit scene. Carolyn Bryant was never brought to trial. That remained true till her death. Roy Bryant and Milam, one year later, In 1956, openly admitted in an interview that they absolutely did torture and murder Emmett Till, and uh, they got paid $4,000 for that interview. And because they had already gone to trial and were found not guilty... They had nothing to lose in admitting that because in our justice system, double jeopardy is a thing. They, they could not be put on trial again for um, something that they were already put on trial for. I mentioned kind of briefly in the beginning when talking about the writer, uh, Keith BoCamp about how this case was reopened in 2004. It was actually also reopened in 2017, both times, um, even in death, Roy Bryant And uh, J.W. Milam were never found guilty. Um, So technically, there has never actually been justice for the Emmett Till case. There are a few other things that have come out of this. I think the thing that honestly just in some ways pisses me off a lot is that in 2022, this is literally almost a year ago, February 28th, 2022, the U.S Senate passed, along with the House of Representatives, and it was signed into law by President Joe Biden, the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act, and it basically um, defined lynching as a hate crime um, and increased the maximum penalty of jail time for 30 years for a bunch of different hate crime offenses. Mind you, Emmett Till was lynched and murdered in 1955, and we just passed this law in 2022.
1: Just last year, there was a discovered unserved arrest warrant for Carolyn Bryant, who's now known as Carolyn Bryant Dunham. And so they tried to reopen the case when they found that, but a grand jury concluded that there was insufficient evidence to indict her. So they dismissed it, which caused, I think, in December of last year, a potential, I think, a protest happened. Uh, so they had to cancel the Christmas parade that was scheduled in fear of it becoming violent because they knew protests were going to happen in Kentucky, where this uh, indictment was discovered.
0: Timothy Tyson, who is a historian, did an interview with Carolyn Bryant in 2008 there are a lot of recorded parts of that interview. There's also a lot of unrecorded parts of that interview. And it was not until 2017 that he actually released details of what that interview consisted of. But he does say that in that interview, she confessed that she made up basically like all of the stuff that she said at the trial. Again, it was confirmed that only the court spectators heard it, not the jury. The defense wanted uh, Bryant's testimony, uh, Carolyn Bryant's testimony to be used as evidence in case uh, Roy and Mylan were convicted, which I think is very interesting because that showed some sort of fear of conviction, which I, I think did not really exist at that time. So I just find that kind of interesting. This is where it gets questionable. Tyson has gone on record that by quoting Bryant, uh, Carolyn Bryant, so his quote from Carolyn is that quote, nothing that boy did could ever justify what happened to him. That is, that is not something that has been able to be, Confirmed. I read something that was also unconfirmed that she did state
1: at a point in time in an interview or something since the trial that she was afraid to tell her husband because
0: she was fearful of Till being murdered. Yeah, she was supposedly she did not tell Roy um, for those three days because he was he was on work. He was delivering shrimp. I don't know what job that is, but he was delivering shrimp somewhere to Texas, I think. And he only found out when he got back from somebody who was working at the store. It was also supposedly in that interview with Tyson that she said that Roy was abusive and that he personally believed that Carolyn embellished her story due to like Roy's abusiveness towards her and that it was maybe more coercion again this is all none of this has been confirmed uh it's basically just a historian who did an interview and only some things of that interview are actually on record but carolyn's daughter-in-law marcia bryant who gave the 99 page i am more than a wolf whistle memoir to Timothy Tyson, because she thought that they had an understanding that he was going to like edit it and be like, and like facilitate the publication of it. And Tyson was like, that was never something that was discussed. And he gave the memoir directly to the Southern Historical Collection at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. So it is in the library archives there. It did have restricted access for 20 years until Carolyn died, um, which was actually, I thought it was one or two years ago. I have no concept of time. It was actually April of this year. So it was April of 2023. Critically, the movie had really great responses. It did not make, it only, it honestly only made back about a third of what the production budget costs were. I think honestly, that has to do with like what this movie is. The people who need to see this movie are unfortunately not the ones who are going to go see it. I don't have a solution to that as much as I would love to. The best I can do is talk about it on this podcast and say, go fucking watch Till if you're a white person. Because if you're a black person, again, I don't believe that this movie is something that obviously... You need to watch. It's it's made for white consumption is what I believe about this um, because it's our learning that has to happen. What I, what I said to my girlfriend after watching this movie was I was like, I want this movie to be four hours. I was like, I loved the way that this was done. I would love to see like an extended director's cut of everything just I, because I I feel like this team between the historians and the writers and the director and the cast, like I think that they could, could do something double the length, just as much justice as, as this film I feel like was. And I know that this is like the longest episode we've probably ever recorded, but I, I feel so strongly about this movie and I am so glad that I finally sat down and watched it myself again i i really can't do anything other than say i just think that you should go watch this movie
1: agreed i mean i thank you for sharing it cuz this would have missed my radar i'm usually you know more aware of civil rights era based films because uh when selma came out however many years ago that came out that kind of came out a little under the radar and i i went out of my way to go see that movie in theaters at the time It's getting harder and harder, I feel like, for these kinds of movies to get the proper recognition of release and attention that they deserve because they are so well done. They are so historically accurate and like the whole creative team involved are working to not only make a good story, but to tell it right and tell
0: it well. And I and I think marketing has a lot to do with it as well. Like I did not know that this movie was coming out until I went to go see Nope. It was a preview for Nope. I'm sure that there were television advertisements. I never saw a single one. The only time I saw marketing for this movie was when I was in theaters and it was a like a preview. The beautiful
1: direction and cinematography to- choices throughout this movie really focusing on characters specifically their faces emotionally as they go through scenes and the use of mirrors like it's so beautifully captured of utilizing mirrors because like mobley works at a barber shop it's like right before she found out because she just had this feeling and went to the barbershop, be like i want to go on vacation let's go to mississippi like right now and pick up emmett kind of thing And that whole beginning of the scene is through mirrors and just seeing the other person's reaction as the other one's talking to that person. And it's just so beautifully done and just mirrors her out because like Mamie in the courtroom, I think it was like right after her testimony and before Carolyn, she's in the bathroom washing up. And it's just a beautiful moment of seeing her try to wash off like the rage she has after being on the stand, but also trying to continue sorting through her grief to, you know, make it through that long week of testimonies and being in that courtroom and everything. It's just so beautifully done. And of course, our last scene where we get that dreamlike ending where she gets to see Emmett again. It starts, we see him barely in the mirror as the song He Beeped When He Should Have Bopped by Dizzy Gillespie is playing, which is like one of the last pieces of music she listened to with Emmett. And that's why she keeps going back to that song. Beautiful soundtrack. Like For some reason, all of these movies, I mean, it might be just the era of music, like black music of this time is just so good because it's it has so much emotional layers to it because it's like, it's both popular music of the time, but it also has so much deeper meaning for themselves. And so like looking at it historically as like a sound designer, having done a few black centric sound design shows, cause I, I did the sound design for Detroit 67, a play by Dominique Morisot um, as well as recently I, did the one-man show. I was the sound and projections designer for Thurgood, based around Thurgood Marshall and his time as a lawyer to being a Supreme Court justice. Always having to dive back into that music and dive into the history and the meaning of that music. It's just you find out more and more of how it's so powerful, so beautifully crafted, and encapsulating the the emotion of, of those people of that time, but also like trying to be hopeful right a sense of hope there in progress yeah so i hope i hope you all enjoy our extra long episode i mean i think i feel it matters next up though first week of december crazy almost at the end of the year it's actually wild i was like you know what because of this kind of topic for this week, knowing we were going to pick lesser known movies, I was like, you know what, let's kind of play off of that further and do hidden gems of 2023. So like movies that came out this year that like, you know, either slipped under the radar or like was good, but quickly was like, you know, outwashed by like Oppenheimer and Barbie or whatever, you know, (laughs) no offense. Like those are probably great movies, but like, what are some hidden gems that may have like, you know, kind of missed the, you know, good attention it should have had, whether it's just a fun movie or just powerful. So what'd you pick? Oh, so I picked Tetris.
0: Okay. I haven't heard of it.
1: Yeah, it's fine. It's It was an Apple exclusive movie, Apple TV exclusive. It's directed by John S. Baird, and it's essentially about how Tetris got outside of outside of communist russia and into, you know, the rest of the world. Oh, it's it's cool. a crazy fun ride and I'm excited to share it cuz I watched it earlier this year and I was just like
0: this movie's just fun and so good. Sick. Okay, cool. I picked the movie Bottoms, which is a little bit more recent, but it was not marketed like at all. It hit a really niche like social media population I feel like and then did not branch out past that literally like in the slightest uh and so (laughs) and so I um that's the one that I picked I haven't seen it yet but I've heard nothing but positive things from everybody I know who's who has seen it and like through the things I saw on social media but it seems like unless you're like in the algorithm I'm in, you haven't really heard of this movie at all. So
1: <laughs> I love it. This is going to be just fun. I'm glad. So to start off December, it's going to be a little more lighthearted, more, more comedy centric movies. This is great.
0: Yeah. I need it. Please. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so yeah, that's going to do it for us here at resonant reels. I mean, thanks for listening. Of course, as always give us any and all film suggestions. We're starting to try and map out the new year. So like anything helps for us right now because we're just super busy and it's hard to come up with ideas right now because of just how busy we are. But we're game with everything. Of course, yeah, follow us on all the platforms, like, subscribe, all those good fun things. We'll see you all next week.
0: Cheers.